If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to uh, Mark uh, chapter 8. We'll finish up verses 22 through 30. And we are uh, at a really important scene in Mark's gospel, uh, a scene that we're going to finish up next week before we take a break and do our summer series in the psalm. So we'll uh, kind of work through these two sections today. Uh, I'll give you a few moments to find it, and uh, we'll read God's Word together. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word, and thank you for the Spirit who has inspired it and led men to write it. Thank you that it is true, that it is undefiled, that it is alive, and that it has been preserved for us even this day. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see the wonderful things from your law, that we would learn to hide your law in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. We pray that this living word would give life, that it would clear our vision, that we would see the beauty and loveliness of Jesus, and that we would be changed by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to uh, sing a hymn, and it's Amazing Grace. And from what I can gather, it's uh, the most popular hymn ever written. If you are, grew up in the black church tradition, you might hear Amazing Grace, maybe sung to a slower pace, maybe over a Hammond B3 organ. If you grew up in a traditionally white church and you probably heard Amazing Grace at a faster tempo behind a pipe organ, uh, but no matter where, what church you are a part of, that we are all somewhat familiar with this classical and beautiful hymn and not just us, right? I think this is a hymn that's being sang across the world. Young people, old people, you name it, it's been sung. It's so famous that uh, John Newton posthumously was even inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame in 1982. Think about that, right? There's a line in this hymn where Newton actually writes, and we're going to sing it. He says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. If you've looked at any uh, artistic renderings of John Newton, then you know that he was not blind, 
that he actually had good sight. He worked on a sea, I mean, on a, on a ship. He was a sailor of sort. Um, so what kind of blindness is he talking about? He's talking about a spiritual blindness. He's talking about the importance that we recognize that there are two ways to see. We can see with our eyes and our retina and our pupils and our optic nerve, and, and we're gathering what we see physically, but there's also a spiritual sight. There's a seeing that needs to happen of the heart, so to speak. And so there's a sight with a lowercase s-i-g-h-t, and there's a sight with all caps, capital S, capital I, capital G, capital H, capital T, and we make the mistake to think that this passage is about one or the other. It's about both. It's about a man who is born physically blind, but it's also about a group of men who are starting to spiritually see. And so the question that I want to put before us this morning is, do you see both ways? I know your eyes are working and you're seeing me, but do you have the sight that Paul writes about in Ephesians? That I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Do you have that kind of sight? Because to not have that kind of sight is deadly and it's dangerous. And what this passage does for the heart is what an optometrist does for the eye. What Jesus is doing by the work of the Holy Spirit, he's asking us the same question he asks the blind man. How's your sight? How's your seeing? I know you see, but do you see? Do you really see? And so I want to talk about uh, three quick things. The first thing is the reality of total spiritual blindness. That's the first point. I'm not sure if you know what a flash mob is, but I see some of you smiling. That lets me know that you do. But in case you don't know what a flash mob is, it's let's say you're walking into the mall and it looks like regular people are having dinner or having lunch. And all of a sudden, somebody stands up and they start to sing. And then somebody else kind of walks up by them and they start to sing. And you're like, oh, my God, is this like what, what's the chances that this could have happened? And now the people who arranged the flash mob, they know it's not haphazard. They know that they rehearsed this and they know they planned this, but it can give the appearance that it's spontaneous. But it's not spontaneous. I would love to see one like in person, right? Well, somebody has this rehearsed dance move that they've been practicing, and then they come together and all break out in a dance or singing. Well, I think that's the way we need to think about this passage. It can appear on the surface that this is haphazard. It can appear that it's haphazard on the, on, in this passage that first Jesus is in Bethsaida, which is in northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and then all of a sudden he's 30 miles north in Caesarea Philippi, and that this blind man randomly comes, and then Jesus has this random conversation with his disciples 30 miles north. But I want to make the case to you that I don't, I don't think this is random. I think this is put here by the Holy Spirit, and you will not find this miracle of these two healings anywhere else in the Gospels. And so we have to ask the question, why would Mark 
put these two passages together like this, I think what's happening is, is, is we've talked about a Markin sandwich before. It's when Mark talks about something and then there's this interruption and then he talks about this thing again and you have to understand the whole based on those three sections. I think what we have here is what I would call a Markin mirror. Now, I can't prove it, but this is kind of what I think when I read and study the passage. I think what's happening in the top namely with the man who's blind, is being mirrored in the bottom by Jesus' conversations with the disciples. You got it for me? So notice, right, this is the passage on both sides. I think there's an A side and there's a B side. And so notice what it says in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a man uh, and begged him to touch him. And I think that's correlating with verse 27 on the right side, and Jesus went on with his disciples through the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So, so location is changing, but Mark wants to keep this thing together. And then you have this, this conversation between Jesus and the blind man. And Jesus asked the blind man, well, do you see anything? And what you have on the, the, the B side of that mirror is Jesus asking the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And then you have on verse 24 on the left side, the A side, and the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And so you start to see that, 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 that his vision isn't always right, but it isn't where it used to be in terms of being totally blind. And you see a counterpart to that, right? And it's coming out when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and they're not completely in left field on the right side. And then you come back to the left side, and then Jesus laid his hands on the man, and the man sees clearly. And then what you have on the right side is, is Peter makes this profession, and it's crystal clear. Like, his vision is solid. It's 2020 spiritually at this moment. And then look how they both end. Jesus ends by telling the man, be quiet. Don't even enter the village. There's this messianic secret, and we're going to unpack that next week. And then notice what Jesus tells his disciples, the same thing. Now, don't say anything about it. In other words, I don't think this is ambiguous. I don't think this is haphazard. I think what Mark is doing is giving us a mirror. He's showing us something physical and blindness on the left, and then he's asking us to tease some truths out on the right. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. So the question that I want to put before you is, what does the physical blindness on, of the man on the left side of the mirror point to on the right side of the mirror. It's spiritual blindness. Remember last week when Jesus asked his disciples, and you can see it right in your Bibles, go up a few verses to verse 18. He says, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? You see what's happening? that the disciples are spiritually blind. They've been with Jesus for three years, and he's still calling them like, y'all don't see. That's the reason we've talked about their epic failures all throughout the Gospels. They're asking questions, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? They're asking questions, who are you? And what Jesus is showing us through their failures is that they still don't get it. 
Now, why don't they get it? It's because though they see him with their eyes, they don't have the capital seeing that Jesus is after. They're blind. They're blind. Now, what does it mean, right? What is it like to be blind? Helen Keller, who was blind in her autobiography, she describes her blindness as being on a boat at a sea, adrift in the dense fog. Think about the image. I don't know if you've seen the movie Ray with Jamie Foxx, but it's about Ray Charles, who was not born blind, but he became blind. And in one of the pivotal scenes of the movie, you get a clue to the last thing, one of the last things that Ray Charles saw before he lost his sight. And it was his baby brother. He and his baby brother were playing outside and mom was inside. And his baby, baby brother fell into uh, the wash tub. And he thought his baby brother was playing. He was kicking and, 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 and moving and splashing water. But his baby brother was drowning. And he sat there and he did nothing. And then right after that, he starts to lose his vision. And so things that were crisp started to get fuzzy, and then darkness started to creep in. And then in the pivotal scene of the movie, everything goes black on the screen. He has lost his sight completely. And you know that that's a turn in the movie because he, he, he can't walk without falling. He's always paranoid. Who's watching him and what are they saying? He can't remember the number of steps to get into his house. And when he gets in the entertainment business, people take complete advantage of him. They're not paying him all of his money because he can't see. And so it's this image of being vulnerable, right, of not being able to see the truth. It's this image of being highly susceptible to falling. It's this image of being imprisoned, right? I have this mask in my pocket, right? And what if I were to put this on my mind, on my head right now, which I'm not going to do, right? But what if I were to put it around my mind and try to preach to you this morning? You know how paranoid I would be? Where am I on the stage? Am I about to fall off? Are they tuning me out? Are they listening, right? Imagine that. Imagine if I gave you a blindfold and said, you have to keep it on for three weeks and you have to do life completely in the dark. Imagine what that would feel like. It would feel like a prison. It would feel like you're left out. It would feel vulnerable. You would feel exposed. You would feel imprisoned. And here's the thing. That's exactly what Isaiah 42 says. Listen to what it says. Steve read it where God says, I will give light, light for the nations, and I will open the eyes to those who are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from their prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, what type of darkness is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about total spiritual darkness darkness. It's like a prison. You're in chains. You're in bondage. And there is life and light out there. And while you are in prison, 
It is not breaking in. And so what, what Jesus does is use the man who is physically blind to draw out our spiritual blindness. You see, we make the mistake to think that the only people blind are the disciples. If we let Scripture say what it says, then we come to realize that we were all born blind. If you've had children, then you know that your OBGYN, when they give birth, that not long after, one minute to five minutes after, they do what they call, it's an APGAR test. And they're testing for appearance. They'll give you a one or a two. They're testing for your pulse, your heart rate. They're testing for your grimace, your, your response abilities. They're testing for activity, your muscle tone. They're testing for respiration. And they're giving you a, a, a zero or a two. And a perfectly healthy baby will score twos on each five categories. Hence, your APGAR store, score will be a 10, right? And then they will do these hearing things to make sure you're hearing. They're, they're going to measure your head circumference. They're going to measure uh, your, your heart rate. They're going to measure your... Um, your circumference around your abdomen, and they're going to measure to see, okay, are they responding to light? And here's the mistake that we think. We think just because we get a clean bill of physical health from the doctor that we're born spiritually healthy. And it's wrong. If God were to administer his own test, to diagnose the spiritual health of every person ever born. We're blind. And we can't see. And we can't hear. We come here by virtue of our union with Adam. Broken and fallen. And this is why in Romans chapter 3, when Paul starts that litany showing that we are born dead in our sins. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one. Their, their mouth is full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in the last thing, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What does that mean? That's his way of saying, we come here not fearing God, not worshiping God not loving God, not desiring God, not needing God. And brothers and sisters, I don't care how well your vision is physically, if you are still in that state, you are blind. You're blind. Now, the second thing I think we see in this text is the possibility of partial spiritual sight. Remember, I, th I think the mirror is important to how we understand what's going on. And I think you see the partial spiritual sight, the partial physical sight, you see it in, in verses 20 through to 24. And so notice what the text says. It says, they came to Bethsaida, this is Jesus with his disciples, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch the blind man. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. 
And so this isn't the first time Jesus did that. Remember over in the previous chapter, there was a man who was deaf and mute, and Jesus did the same thing. He took him from the crowd and took him from his people and pulled him to the side. And then notice what happens here. It actually says Jesus spit on the man's eyes. And I'm just like, come on, man. Like, really? I don't know. Some of y'all are drummer phobes. And you're like, man, why does Jesus spit? That looks so derogatory. And I don't know why he chose to use his saliva. Don't. I don't have that answer. But we do know that after Jesus did this, look at the question he asked the man. He says, do you see anything? And look at verse 24. The man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. Is Jesus losing his mojo? He just told a a little girl to rise who was dead. He just told the winds and the waves to obey, and they did. He just told a Syrophoenician woman that your daughter is healed, and he, all he had to do was to say it. He didn't even have to go there. So what do we make of this? Like, Jesus, are you losing your power? What is happening? And here's the thing. Mark says, don't play with Jesus. Because Mark gives us another healing of the blind, and it's actually over there in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, and Mark says Jesus didn't even need to touch him. He just told him, you're healed. And so this is not Jesus losing power. This is Jesus being intentional and methodical. And so we have to ask the question, well, Jesus, why would you allow this man to half see? I think the answer is on the B side of the mirror. Did you notice what happened when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And notice what they told him in verse 28. They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So what's happening down there? Well, why would they say John the Baptist? That's what Herod thought as well. Herod is like, yo, I thought I killed this dude. This Jesus guy, is he John the, is, is, he, is he back? How, how, how is this possible? What about Elijah? If you know the Old Testament, Elijah was the prophet who didn't die. He was walking with the Lord, and the Lord simply just took him home. And here's the truth about Malachi. In the book of Malachi, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before it comes. And so it could be that some of those out there who knew their Bibles and knew Malachi chapter 4, they're making the distinction that, wait a minute, God promised that he was in Elijah in the, before the great day of the Lord, and maybe the great day of the Lord is here, and this Jesus guy is really a reincarnation of Elijah. He's really Elijah who is back now doing his work. Or maybe he's one of the other prophets. And here's the thing. All I want to do is think about the terrain of Mark. What did the Pharisees say about Jesus? Where did they think he was getting his power from? Satan. What about Nazareth? You're crazy. You're just a regular local joker. You are a carpenter. You are a, you know, you were born out of wedlock. So think about what they, what, 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 what people around Jesus were saying. Now lay that onto what people were now saying in Mark's gospel. Man, maybe this is John the Baptist and, 
And maybe this is Elijah or, or another prophet. Did you notice what's happening? They're not way in left field like the Pharisees, right? They're not ascribing his power to Satan. And they're not just calling him a common man. In their minds, they're starting to connect some dots that he is coming after the order of a prophet. Now, they're wrong because he is not coming after the order of a prophet. He is the prophet. But make, them, make no mistake about it. They are seeing, but it's still unclear. You get it? They're like the man. The man saw. He wasn't in complete blindness anymore. He saw, but what he saw was kind of, kind of a fuzzy and unclear. And that's what's happening around Jesus at the moment. They are not back there with the Pharisees saying he's a child of Satan. But you know what? They have not yet made the profession that Peter makes. And so they're right there in the middle. Man, something is special about him, and I can't put my finger on it. And we know he's not a regular local joker. We know something is special about this Jesus character. And I think what Mark is doing is showing us partial spiritual sight. It's not where it needs to be, but it's not where it was once. And I think we got to listen to that because I think in our circles, we tend to think in binary. It's either black or white. Either you're in the kingdom or you're out. And I get that, right? I, I get it. And I get it that there is a parable about you're either a wheat or a tear. But the last I checked, that is at the judgment. That is at the end of time when there will be a great separation. If we really believe that God is at work, if we really believe that he works and is moving and his spirit is moving, then we ought to have a category for in process. I don't know about you, but I know I did not want to go to church when I was growing up. And I know I was forced to go to church. And I, I see your mouth. Yes, I'm, I'm going to admit it, sweetheart. I'm sorry. Her mouth just like, <gasps> I, I just didn't, right? But you have parents who make you go. If the church is open, you're going to go. And there were times when I paid attention and times when I didn't, right? I know. I heard people speak, and sometimes I remember what they said, and sometimes I didn't. But it is a mistake to think that when I was converted in, on my couch, on my futon in Ohio, that that's the beginning of when God was working? You could have asked me about Jesus before I was converted, and I would have kind of given you fuzzy and right answers, right? There, there, I think there is a category for the, their sight isn't where it was. Now, it isn't where it ought to be, but God is kind of working and shaping, right? They see, but it's, it's not clear. It's not precise. Isn't that why we keep bringing our children to church? Even though they won't sing? Even though they don't believe? Don't we believe if we keep staying near, we're giving God room to work? Amen. Isn't it why we keep praying even when we don't see the fruit in the moment? 
We're believing God works. And aren't we excited when though they might not profess faith in Christ, you start to see flickers of life and hope. Isn't that amazing and isn't that good? Think about the book of Acts and think about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. You want to know what he's doing? He is reading Isaiah 53. And he's reading Isaiah 53, sitting, uh, I'm, I'm presumably outside, and then Philip, the disciple, is somehow transported to where he was, and Philip has this conversation with this man, yo, brother, what are you reading? He's like, man, I'm reading Isaiah, but I don't know what I'm reading. I, I don't know who this is talking about. And Peter says, I have, I mean, Philip says, I have good news for you. That passage that you're reading right there in Isaiah 53 it's about Jesus. And in that moment, the Ethiopian eunuch is converted and he is baptized and he believes. So you mean to tell me him reading Isaiah 53 and not being able to discern clearly is a waste? It's not a waste. It's not a waste. God is using that to bring even more clear sight. And so I want this to be a place where people can be in process. We're in process. God's working. Now, it's going to sound like I'm talking out the side of my neck here because I'm, I'm not. I'm also going to say partial sight is still insufficient. In the words of Carl Ellis, who preached here, he says, not quite is not right. And I think we got to hear that in the South. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody knows stuff. And I think we got to be really careful not to get comfortable with partial spiritual sight. If you notice, Jesus did not leave the man seeing people looking like trees. And Jesus is not satisfied with just being, oh, he's like Elijah. No, he's not. He's greater than Elijah. And so here's the danger. I want this to be a place for partial spiritual sight. But let us not be complacent or content with it, because there is going to be a judgment, and there will be a separation from the wheat and the tares, and only those who see and savor Christ will get to enjoy him forever, and halfway won't make it. I love to watch, like, funny videos on, on YouTube at times, and, and so this week, I said, you know what, I want to, it's not football season, so I looked up world's worst fumbles. And if, you, if you've watched them, then you know exactly what's happening. You'll see guys, I mean, they are like moving, right? They're, they got a touchdown wide open, and they're so excited to celebrate that they drop the ball before hitting the goal line. And then they think they got a touchdown, and then the referee's like, nope, that's a fumble at the one yard, buddy, right? And my favorite one is this, this guy, I think it's a high school game. He's running, like he is like moving, and he gets to about the five yard right five yards right before the end zone and he tries to do a flip and so he does a frontwards flip holding the ball trying to cross the end zone and he gets up and he's like doing this and they call the replay and he drops the ball like right that much before the goal line and guess what I don't care how close you got if that ball is not in your possession when you break the plane of the goal line guess what homeboy 
It is not a touchdown. Look, having general wisdom about Jesus, thinking he's a general miracle worker, thinking he's a cool cat to hang out with, look, that's still not perfect vision. And you still don't see. Which makes way for our third and final point. I think you start to see the blessing of spiritual sight that we learn from the passage and we learn through the man first that total clear sight is possible. And so what Jesus does is he works the physical first and you see it in verse 26. Then Jesus laid his hands on the eyes again and the man opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly Jesus would not leave him in his blindness. And this is good news. If you're here this morning and you're physically blind, we have a Savior who will, in the end, in the new heavens and the new earth, wipe away all blindness, all sickness, all addiction, all suffering, all sorrow, all sin. He is giving us a foretaste of the new world to come, and he drops it in on the blind man there. But we make the mistake to think that Jesus is only here to give physical sight. He's also here to do what you see him doing in the hearts of his disciples. And so notice what Jesus asks in the B-side. After he's heard the people who get it halfway right and halfway wrong, then he turns to the disciples. He says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You're not just a miracle worker. You're not just a God amidst a panoply of other gods. You are the truth, the way, the life. All paths go back to you. You are the one that has been promised in the Old Testament from the beginning of time. Eve will bear a son, and the son that Eve will have will crush the head of the serpent. You're that son. You are the greater son of Abraham. Isaac was a small child of promise. You are the child of promise, right? You are the rest that the promised land foreshadowed. You are David's son in 2 Samuel 7 who has been promised to sit on the throne forever. You are the embodiment of the temple. Everything the temple pointed to in a way where God and man can meet, it pointed us to you. You are the creator and the sustainer of all things. You are the one who gave the law and you are the one who interprets the law, right? You are the one, the man, there is no other. That's what Peter's confessing. You're it. And beloved, That is what's happening in our passage. It's as if Peter and the disciples have been at the optometrist's office for three years. And they're looking at the chart. And the chart is blurry. And the optometrist is is using, what's the little thing called? It's called a phoropter. I think that's how you say it. 
They're taking that thing that's wrapped around your head and they're tweaking it and they're tweaking it and they're tweaking it and they're tweaking it until what you look out there comes into focus. And what's happening in our passage, God has been doing that. And what they're looking at is not a chart with letters. They're looking at Jesus. And now Jesus is coming into sharper focus. I heard about you in my hearing, but now we see you clearly. We were blind, but now we see clearly. And we got to wrestle with the fact that Peter gets this glimpse, and then right after this, he kind of drops the ball again. We're going to talk about that next week. But let's not bring that into what's happening now. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually says to Peter, blessed are you for what you've seen. And is it not true that when you get up and leave the optometrist's chair after your vision has been corrected, do you not see everything else clearly? When they get that prescription right and you can see and you can wear those glasses, street signs are crisp. Faces in the congregation are crisp. Words that you read on the paper are crisp. If this is true for an optometrist's office, what happens when God fixes our sight on Jesus and we see him in his splendor and majesty? Does it not then change how we see everything? See, before you see Jesus, death looks really terrifying and it feels really eternal. But then when you gaze at Jesus, you look back at death and you realize he's conquered death. You change how death is viewed because of Jesus. We just sang a song, chase not this world vain riches that so rapidly decay. If you don't know Jesus, then you're going to think that the sum total of your life is to get healthy and get wealthy and get wise. But when you see Jesus, does it not reorient how you view money? I'm a steward and not an owner. Right. I can lay up treasures in heaven that moth cannot destroy, that will not rust and thieves will not take. Why? Because I've seen Jesus and the church. It looks like on the surface, those are just some people who given away an hour and a half on a Sunday. It's a worthless institution. Why go and be a part of it? But when you see Jesus, this is his bride. This is the people he's died for. He has made us family. And so seeing Jesus changes how we see church. You tell me one thing in your life that is unclear. I promise you, when you see Jesus, he brings sight, real sight to all things. And so if you're grieving today because you don't have a husband, see Jesus. He's a good and gracious husband, and he will not abandon you. He loves you and will be faithful and will satisfy your heart with joy. 
If you look at addiction and then it looks like a horrific seven headed monster, like it's going to wreak havoc on me. I say, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. With his help and by his spirit, he can transform that. Seeing Jesus shapes everything. And it did with John Newton. John Newton worked in the slave trade family. Captain of a ship in the slave trade. And he talks about being blind. I was blind. I was blind. I was blind. And when he was blinded to Jesus, you know what else he was blinded to? How do you treat people of color? But when he saw Jesus, you know who he, he, who he became? He worked with William Wilberforce to end slavery. And we're singing Amazing Grace today as a reminder that seeing Jesus changes everything. And so my question is, do you see? Do you savor him? Do you love him? Because if you can answer that question truthfully, Jesus says you see. You see both ways. Now where does this sight come from? In Matthew's gospel, you know what Matthew says? What Jesus says in Matthew's gospel? He says, Peter, flesh and blood did not give this to you. This was revealed to you by the Father. And so if you love Jesus today, if you see Jesus today, this was not because you're smart. It was not because you're good. It's not because you went to seminary. It's not because you know your Bible. You see Jesus because God called you out of your darkness. And therefore, he is worthy to be praised. His grace is worthy to be sang about. And if you don't see Jesus, man, I pray that you would hear him preached from this pulpit. That God isn't trying to, for you to wait on you get to, for you to get your life right. He says, you'll be waiting forever. He says, what you can do is see that I've sent my son to come to live the life that you can't live. He will take away all your guilt, all your shame, all your sorrow. He will separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. And he will go to a cross and die for you because my justice had to be satisfied. And his perfection is credited to your account that you by faith would simply trust and believe. If that's you this morning, God bless you. I pray that we can be a two-seeing people. We see with our eyes, and we see Jesus with our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you, and we pray that you, by your word and your spirit, would indeed graciously open our eyes 
that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would see the glory of God in the face and person of Jesus. Would you do this for Christ's sake? Amen.